Today we look into feminist novelist from page number 30, second para. So I'll begin. Two sisters, Rebecca and Baby Body, are the central characters of the book. Now the book invention is from man to man. So uh, there is a mention of the two protagonists and let's see how the story proceeds. Bertie is seduced by her tutor and subsequently forced by gossip and malice to leave South Africa and go to England, where she helplessly sinks into a life of sin. Now, this is the circumstance of Bertie, who is uh, molested by her tutor. And later, when she cannot uh, you know, uh, remain behind in South Africa, she has to flee to England. And uh, when she reaches England, uh, what is uh, awaiting her is not a wonderful life, a rosy life, but rather a life uh, filled with sin. Now, uh, Rebecca, on the other hand, marries and has children, but becomes increasingly dependent and frustrated. So these are sequence of events which are kind of, you know, tracing the development of these two characters. So Rebecca, though she marries and has uh, children doing the traditional duties and so on, she is becoming rather uh, dependent on the spouse and the family and at the same time uh, seems to nourish uh, a kind of uh, disappointment and it results in her becoming totally frustrated. Ultimately, she discovers that her husband is unfaithful and separates from him, raising his illegitimate mulatto's child with her own. So this is uh, another uh, you know, plot development wherein uh, her husband is actually, you know, uh, proving uh, to be unfaithful. And uh, so she doesn't hesitate. She separates from the man. But at the same time, uh, fulfilling the role of an ideal woman and so on, she is uh, raising uh, his uh, bastard child. And uh, it is a half uh, white and half black child, Moleto. And uh, this is her uh, circumstance. In the outline for the book, Rebecca finally finds her sister in a Cape Town brothel and tenderly nurses her on her syphilitic deathbed. So, um, see, if you look at uh, the plot overview, you will find that uh, sister is uh, missing and Rebecca is uh, kind of, you know, uh, finding her uh, location and it happens to be uh, in a brothel. Okay, and when she is in um, a disease condition with uh, syphilis, it is Rebecca who is actually taking care of Bertie. Okay, so both these characters represent aspects of early Shrina's own personality. But uh, what we have to understand is, you know, Rebecca's particularly convincing portrait of the women uh, who is not so much trapped as a self-imprisoned. It's not like anybody is compelling her to behave in a particular manner, but she is in a way kind of uh, imprisoning herself. Rebecca's cultivation of her female sensibility and ideology and in her frustrated retreat from experience, we can see the crisis of the woman artist at the turn of the century. So Rebecca is like a replica representing how exactly female sensibility was and how the female ideology was uh, you know, uh, in uh, that particular uh, century. Olishrina has many affinities with Virginia Woolf and from man to man anticipates the language as well as the symbolism of a room of one's own published uh, years later. So this is something that you have to understand. 
So um, there is a great deal of uh, similarity, especially in language as well as symbolism. Okay, so from man to man is published first and uh, room of one's own is published by Virginia Woolf much later. Let's continue. The private room uh, is the novel's most potent uh, and disturbing symbol. Rebecca makes a little place for herself in the corner of the children's room. So see, all this is actually represented as a symbol because the private room which Rebecca occupies in the corner of the chil uh, children's room is very disturbing. Okay, so let me quote from the text. The room was a small one made by cutting off the end of the children's bedroom with a partition. She had had it before as a study for herself where she could always have her children call or if they needed her at night. It was hardly larger than a closet. A closet is actually a shelf. But there was a window in it and a small outer door. And both there was a window in it and a small outer door. And both looked out on the rock onto the rockery and the plumbingo hedge, but on nothing else. And there was a small door close behind the window, which she had put in that at any time she might uh, run out and work a little in the garden. So this is a private space uh, with a view of outside, but a limited view, of course, from uh, my reading will be obvious for you. So let's see. Here she keeps her fossil collection, her science books, including Darwin and a picture of Madonna. See, this is a replica of uh, Olive Schreiner because through Rebecca, we seem to be seeing her exactly. So she has a fossil collection, shows her interest in science, and then she is, uh, you know, greatly pleased with Darwin and the theory of evolution. And she has a picture of Madonna also. She is highly spiritual too. Here she retires at night to sew and to meditate and to write snatches in a journal. So this is how she spends her time. At night, she might actually go and sit there and stitch, uh, or she might simply meditate or maybe write, you know, bits and pieces in her journal. The room is all too clearly and pathetically the embodiment of her femaleness. So, just like Olive Srina, Rebecca's room is a representation of her femaleness. It is connected to the children and nature and linked to the evolutionary past, literally a womb with a view. Now, see, when I described uh, that particular uh, room, it's very, uh, you know, simple for you to understand because, see, uh, the room is like a, a kind of a, a portal which is connecting the children and herself with nature. And it is also kind of connecting to her past and it's almost like a safe space, like a womb with a view because uh, the room has a, a window which is opening up to the garden and rockery and so on. As she feverishly scribbles what no one will read, Rebecca is like a prisoner in a cell. Now see, uh, this line is very important. She scribbles feverishly. Okay, she's not comfortable while writing. And what no one will read. Now this is the dilemma of Olive Shreena. Because um, see, when she wrote, she wasn't pleased that others would read. So same is the case of Rebecca. Rebecca is like a prisoner in a cell. So although she's sitting in the room, she feels like a prisoner. She feels a claustrophobia. On the brown carpet on the floor was a mark like a footpath where the nap had been worn off, running right around the desk. This was where she walked round and round, 
because the room was not large enough to allow of walking up and down. Now, see, this is a very small space. And on the carpet, there is a worn mark because she always walks in a particular direction. She can't actually walk up and down, uh, you know, like um, a person who is out for a walk because there is very less space. One recalls Mrs. Gaskell's account of the broth circling the drawing room table at Howard's Parsonage and also Charlotte Perkin Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, a horror story of a woman going mad during a rescue. Now, this is a very interesting one, The Yellow Wallpaper. This is actually a, a, a grotesque story where a woman is actually going insane. And when does this happen, by the way? During a rescue. She wasn't doing much, but she was alone. She was trying to recover and she ends up as mad or insane. These confined women adopt the compulsive behaviors of caged animals. Now, see, uh, the embodiment of a femaleness when uh, extremely alone is actually resulting in uh, a woman behaving like a caged animal. Okay, so it shows a kind of a compulsive, unavoidable kind of behavior. So, Rebecca has to make do with her room. She makes it as attractive as she can and forbids her husband to enter it. But she does not deceive herself about it. The room is exclusive because it has to be a refuge, a shelter, not because it contains anything of value. Now, see, this is a place that she separates and keeps it aside for herself. And she tries to decorate it and make it as attractive as possible. And she is restricting the entry of her husband also. See, the reason is not because the room is, you know, exclusive or anything, but that is her safe sanctum. She doesn't have anything of great value there, but she wants, uh, you know, a, a kind of a protection there. In her fantasies, she imagines what it must be like to be in, uh, to be uh, one of a company of men and women in a room together, all sharing somewhat the same outlook on life. So, um... When the character is expressing, uh, the character is actually kind of imagining what it will be like to be in the presence of, you know, a room full of men and women who are all um, having a similar background or outlook in life. And although she works out a feminist philosophy that derives lie, growth and evolution from mother love, she cannot help wishing to be a man. Now, this is exactly like Olishrina. Okay. Uh, she sympathizes with women, but at the same time, does she really sympathize? Well, she isn't comfortable in the presence of women. So, let's see. How nice it would be to be a man. She fancied she was one, a, one till she felt her very body grow strong and hard and shaped like man's. Now, see, this is a, a kind of a fancy that she has. She felt the great freedom open to her. No place shut off from her. See? Uh, being a woman, she would have restrictions, but uh, when she grows into a man, she would uh, be, uh, you know, free to move everywhere. The long chain broken, so whatever is actually tying her down, that would be broken loose. All work possible for her. No law, a law to say this, and this is for women. So there would not be any restrictions, and she would not be kind of you know bound to any kind of restrictions, and um, there would be nobody saying that you know this is for a woman and uh, this is for uh, a man, etc. and so on. You are woman. Oh, how beautiful to be a man, and be able to take care of and defend all the creatures weaker and smaller than you are. Here we go. 
so um being a woman uh, you may not actually be uh, able to take care of and defend all the creatures who are weaker and smaller than uh, the person in question so hence the fixation or the fascination with being a man how beautiful it is to be a man this is how it goes for someone so keenly aware of female oppression shrina is sadly under ambition when all is said and done the novels are depressing and claustrophobic so ulushrina is always aware of about how a, a, a woman is actually always feeling oppression okay and uh, in the same case the author is actually kind of you know under ambitious she's not too ambitious and when everything is actually discussed and settled uh, her novels are rather depressing it's having a gloomy tinge and claustrophobic also it kind of you know suffocates and uh, stifles uh, uh, a person the heroines are granted only the narrowest of possibilities the treatment of them is disconcertingly unadventurous even timid so how is the heroines portrayed how is the character sketch by the way uh the heroines are uh, granted uh, you know the smallest of possibilities in uh, their actions and they are treated uh, in a disconcerting and unadventurous manner and sometimes the characters are even you know um having issues of timidity lack of confidence and so on lindel dies after childbirth bertie now lindel is a character from animal farm and bertie is a character from man to man okay so lindel is dying after childbirth we discussed that earlier now bertie meets a fate worse than death what happens to bertie she is molested then she ends up in a brothel and then she dies of syphilis okay so um rebecca retreats daydreams and desultorily cultivates a fragmented and undisciplined art so um in this particular uh, novel rebecca is actually kind of ending up as unfinished okay and uh, is having a definitely a fragment a fragmented identity too like shrina they give up too easily and too soon so just like the author uh, elaine show walter says that uh, the characters seem to be giving up on life too uh, quickly and uh, you know and that too very uh, fast too which is not really you know uh, believable or culpable in his introduction to african farm the south african novelist dan jacobson writes regretfully almost the uh, sorry about the almost overwhelmingly sense of talents wasted and frustrated in what appears to be a perversely deliberate way so um while writing the introduction uh, you know dan is actually making a comment saying that you know there is an uh, overwhelming sense of talents but these talents seem to be wasted it doesn't seem to have brought any results and frustrated also in what appears to be a perversely deliberate way so whatever is actually kind of you know figuring inside the author that is reflected in how the story is told as well and yet as jacobson fully recognizes there is something almost heroic in trina's effort to make art out of a society that has never been given any kind of a voice of its own so here though not too successful there is actually a a, a kind of heroism involved in her uh, you know style of writing because uh, she is uh, trying uh, to make uh, something out of uh, society because society had never given uh, any kind of voice uh, of 
for a, a woman character. Okay, but Srina is trying to do that. Srina's first book, Undyne, was set in a fantasized England copied from the novels of Jane Austen. African Farm confronted the drab reality of uh, copiers and cactus. So, um, in uh, African Farm, uh, the story is actually happening in South Africa. Whereas in the other first novel, Undyne, it is set in England and it is almost uh, written in the same manner as, uh, you know, uh, the novels of Jane Austen. Okay, how uh, certain values and morals are actually kind of uh, entertained and given great importance to. So, um, in African Farm, she is writing about life which surrounds her. Okay, so let's look further. The real problem of the colonial writer, Jacobson suggests, is not just the hitherto undescribed, uncelebrated, wordless quality of life around him, but uh, its inferiority in contrast to the apparent richness and color of the parent literature. So, what we have to understand is, you know, the portrayal of uh, the life is actually different. Uh, so, if, uh, you know, uh, the parent literature was uh, very rich and colorful, um, it may not be the same kind of narrative which happens in the uh, consequent uh, narratives uh, like Srinas. As a South African and as a woman, Srina was writing out of a double colonialism. Now, let's uh, look at what double colonialism is, okay? The uncelebrated landscapes she was trying to record were, bo uh, were both the barren Karoo and the claustrophobic inner landscape of uh, the new woman. So, this is actually uh, the double colonial, uh, you know, um, imagery which is uh, kind of pictured here. See, the landscapes that she is portraying is uh, not too, uh, you know, uh, well known. And uh, she is trying to uh, record uh, two aspects, by the way. Uh, the barren Karoo, the vegetation, the dry, uh, you know, trees and plants and so on. And the claustrophobic. So, whatever is actually happening inside the mind of a new woman, that is also kind of portrayed. So, the inner landscape is also portrayed. The authenticity of her struggle, its rawness, its personality, touch readers, especially women readers, and awaken their deepest selves. These qualities made Srina important for other women writers. So, uh, this is why she is, you know, uh, even now so very read and popular. So, uh, whatever be her struggle, there is a sense of uh, originality, a kind of rawness and a sense of personality also. Now, the authenticity is actually something which uh, touched uh, the readers and impressed especially the women readers. Okay, And uh, through these works, uh, it was able to uh, kind of uh, awaken or bring to the forefront uh, whatever is in their minds. So, these qualities made Srina important for other women writers. So, she was a source of inspiration for other people. Do Doris Lessing remembered Anim African Farm as a first book she had read that reflected what she herself knew and could see. So, Doris Lessing is very much influenced by the African Farm and she says that, you know, uh, she reads in the book what she already knows and what she has already seen also which is, you know, almost like throwing together a deja vu kind of effect. And also, ultimately, an endeavor, a kind of hunger, that passionated desire for growth and understanding, which is the deepest pulse of human beings. So, 
uh, the quintessential uh, nature is that um, in that uh, task of writing, there was a kind of hunger, a desire for development and uh, understanding basic human nature. And uh, this is indeed uh, something which is at the base level of a human being. Okay, we are on page number 32 and I will begin, uh, you know, the second para on page number 32. Like Olive Schreiner, Sarah Grant came from a silent culture and made herself a novelist through sheer force of will. About 1890, now we are going to discuss, you know, another uh, author, Sarah Grant. So, uh, till now we were discussing Olive Schreiner. Now we move on to Sarah Grant. About 1890, she left an unhappy marriage to a much older man and the memory of her deprived childhood in Ireland and Northern England and created a new persona for herself in London. Okay. So what we see is, you know, she is shedding her earlier life, getting a divorce, separating and going to a new locale and creating a new persona for, um, you know, her, um, um, uh, her debut as an author. Okay. So, Frances Clark McFall was left behind. So, that's her original self. Her real self was left behind. And Sarah Grant, the matriarch, the beautiful female prophet was born. So, once she shed the earlier, uh, you know, nature of Frances Clark McFall, Sarah Grant was, you know, a beautiful um, kind of apparition who was born. Her self-image uh, the role she chose to play was very different from the image suggested by Corabel or uh, George Eliot. So, what she wanted to do was very much different from what could have been suggested by people like, you know, Corabel or uh, George Eliot for that matter. Grant saw herself as a great teacher and as a woman of genius. So, uh, see, there is something different about Olive Srina and Sarah Grant. Sarah Grant is, um, you know, you could say maybe a little narcissistic, but in a, in a good way. She is a wonderful teacher and she is a woman of extraordinary talents who could be called as a genius. So, um, Grant's most successful novel uh, was The Heavenly Twins, which she wrote in 1893. And this sold 20,000 copies the first week itself. So, stylish, assured and strikingly original, this was The Heavenly Twins. Now, The Heavenly Twins is a strongly feminist novel that deals with sex role conditioning, venereal disease and uh, women's right to independence, you know, the pertinent questions. So, the twins of the title, The Heavenly Twins, you know, are irrepressible children called Angelica and Diabolo. Okay. So, these are the two children. Now, they are identical in intellect, will and daring. So, they seem to have the same capacity. Now, contemporary readers saw the twins as mischievous madcaps of pickles, like the naughty children then in literary vogue. But Grant meant to show through them the false division of sex roles into angelic female and devilish male. Now, see, this is something we had discussed in the beginning of uh, feminism and the divisions. So, sex role conditioning, which we had done in the previous class, is exactly in, uh, you know, force over here. So, dividing a particular, uh, you know, um, a person of a particular sex into so-called um, gender roles is actually not really advisable. Okay. The novel takes them from the age of five through adolescence and carefully describes 
the gradual divergence of their lives. So um, the novel is actually kind of very interesting because it is tracing development of a child from um, not a toddler but uh, maybe a young child through puberty and is also uh, kind of later uh, you know narrating how their lives start uh, you know uh, changing how the life becomes uh, different and they take different roads as children they are essentially androgynous but age brings socially conditioned differences now this is actually a beautiful portrayal you have to read it to enjoy it so um, initially they are androgynous that is both the aspects of um, you know female and male are there but age is actually bringing a socially conditioned differences like you are a boy you have to do like this you are a girl you have to behave in this manner and so on all these are socially conditioned differences okay so although angelica is the elder taller stronger and wickeder of the two the organizer and commander of every expedition it is diavolo who gets the opportunities for education and self development and who finally goes off to sandhurst sandhurst is an institute leaving his sister behind so see it's very clear angelica the sister is older but even then she is deprived of certain freedoms because it is diavolo who is actually the other twin who is getting a chance for educating himself or uh, for even developing his character and so on so he is able to go to uh, you know uh, undergraduate study uh, institutes and uh, thereafter what happens is you know angelica is left behind nobody really kind of gives her that permission after a bizarre interlude in which she goes about disguised as her brother angelica subsides into early domesticity with the advantage of a fatherly indulgent husband and with a vague hope of doing good in the world somehow some day so what we have to understand is you know there is a gap uh, and during that gap she is actually uh, dressing up uh, like her brother and uh, she's disguising herself okay and angelica is also kind of uh, settling into uh, the usual kind of domesticity and um, she also has uh, you know the protection of a fatherly and very indulgent husband and she also has a, a, an unclear hope of doing something really good in the world and uh, she hopes to do that good you know some day somehow or uh, in uh, some uh, you know real time in the future uh, i am on page number 33 and i'm doing the second paragraph i'll conclude with the second paragraph The second half of the novel follows the fortunes of two young brides in the same town Edith and Evadne who represent the old and the new woman Edith is steeped in religion and the feminine mystique and Evadne has educated herself in science medicine and the works of John Stuart Mill now see uh we are going into a greater analysis where we're going to look into the development of two uh, young uh, ladies okay who are brides in the who are living in the same town so one is edith edith is actually kind of you know very religious and uh, she loves that aura of uh, feminine mystique and uh, the femaleness and so on whereas ivatni uh, is the new woman Uh, so ivadni is the one who has educated herself and she has educated herself in different subjects like science and medicine and she has also read you know works of philosophers like john stuart mill and so on which is actually what we have to discuss further in the next uh, session so till then it's goodbye i'm stopping on page number 33 
second paragraph. I've completed the second paragraph. So that's it for me now. Take care.